Amazing. I think Stephanie, she needs a little bit more enthusiasm. That's what I'm thinking. Man. Well, grab a hand. We're going to pray. Let's come to that. Holy Spirit. Yes, help all the single people get dates. Help them to obey the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray your blessing on tonight. We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would give us insights and wisdom into both our identity and our responsibility. Amen. I want to talk to you tonight about the responsibility of royalty. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says, And he, speaking of Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> How many know that you're not just righteous, you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? You're no longer a sinner, you're a saint. When you receive Jesus Christ, you were transformed from sinner to saint. It's not even your nature to sin anymore. We've talked about this so many times, that literally the, the cross didn't just forgive your sin, it transformed your being. You became a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You're a royal priesthood. How many know in the Old Testament, the Levitical priests were a priesthood? Well, you're not just a priesthood, you're a royal priesthood. <laughs> your, dad, your dad isn't president of president, he's king of kings. You... <laughs> How many know you married into the family? You were adopted, you got married into the family, and you're a king's daughter or son. That makes you royalty. That's a good word right there already. Message could be over right now, and you would all be blessed. Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. How many know you're made in the image and likeness of God? In fact, so much so that 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all, that's all y'all, with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. Let me read it to you again. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. <laughs> In other words, when you look at Jesus, it's like looking in a mirror. Why? Because you were made in his image and in his likeness. You look like your daddy. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God. How many of you know when you act like God, you're being yourself? I didn't say it. It's in the Bible. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So I want to talk a little bit about not so much the identity of royalty, because we've talked so much about that, but the responsibility of royalty. You can always tell how close you live to the palace by how you respond to injustice. Here we go. You can always tell how close you live to the palace by how you respond to injustice. Let me give you an example. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, it's the story of Moses. And you know the story of Moses that... The, the Pharaoh was killing all the firstborn males, and so his mother put him in a basket and sent him down the river. Who should rescue him? But coincidentally, it was Pharaoh's daughter. 
So what happened? Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. What happened to Moses? Why was Moses raised in Pharaoh's house? I had an encounter many years ago, which I've shared many times. And the Lord said, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? I said, no, but I bet you're going to tell me. He says, because a man, is, a man who's in slavery internally cannot free people who are in slavery externally. So it was necessary for Moses to be raised as a prince so he could free my people. Look what it says. It says, verse 11, Now, about those days when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brethren, and he looked on their hard labors, and he saw the Egyptians beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck him down, and he hit him in the sand. What I'm getting at is this. Moses lived in the palace. And when you live in the palace, when you're close to the palace, you, you respond to injustice differently than poor people. You somehow have the attitude that everything happens in the kingdom is somehow related to something you should do about it. And what I'm getting at is this. It's great to be royalty. It's great to be nobility. But I'd like to propose to you that nobility and royalty have a responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. And so when you live close to the palace, you start to perceive injustice from a totally different perspective because nobility does not like injustice. When Moses, who was raised in the palace, as you know, to be a king like Pharaoh, when he saw his brothers being mistreated, how many know nobody told him, go do something about that? It was just being raised in a, in, a, in a house of a king who everything in the kingship was his responsibility. There was something about Moses being raised as a prince. When he saw injustice, he felt like he needed to act. Now, obviously, we know that he didn't act righteously. But the point is, he did act. And when God saw Moses acting, when God saw that Moses acted on injustice, he said, I got my man. Now that's Chris's version of it. You're like, where's that in the Bible? It's in the unauthorized version. What I'm getting at is this. God, had, God saw people who were being unjustly, being dealt with unjustly, right? He needed a deliverer. How many of you know when he saw that Moses hated injustice, he knew he had something to work with. We see the same thing. What happens when you get close to the palace? There's the story of Esther. And uh, I, I love the story of Esther. It's, um, we, sort of, uh, we sort of doctor Photoshop the story of Esther. <laughs> I, I don't know. Do you know that God's not mentioned in the entire book of Esther? It, it's an interesting story because uh, Esther was not in a beauty contest. <laughs> So I don't want to wreck the whole story for the children. And the whole thing is actually a little bit weird to me. Because her, her uncle Mordecai is the one who gives her this great, great idea that she should get involved in the beauty contest in which the king sleeps with the girls that he likes. And then chooses the ones. Yes, go look at the story. You can reread the story. But actually the king stayed with each one of them all night. They weren't playing checkers. Now, what makes the story a good story is that Esther didn't take second. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, the, I'm not really going there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just say that this, that the real virtuous person in the book of Esther is actually Vashi, who was the first wife of King Agrippius. She refused to dance for the king when he was drunk 
in front of his guests. I would say she, had the virtu- she was the virtuous one, at least in the beginning. But anyway, sorry to mess up the story of Esther for you. I love Esther. She's awesome. Don't you love... You know, one of the things that I love about the Bible is God tells the truth. I love that God tells us how amazing David was, and I love the fact that he includes the story of Bathsheba and Uriah. I just love it. I just love that God's like, this is a man after my heart. Oh yeah, he had a little mistake, like he committed adultery and killed a guy, but everybody has a bad day. I just love that God is real. I love that God tells on his own people. I love that he doesn't Photoshop his own book. I love that he goes, I love this guy, and you have to work out how he could be a man after God's heart when he made such a horrible mistake. No, not a mistake. A hor- created such a, committed such a horrible sin. You have to work out how you're going to read the Psalms when you're reading the Psalms of a murderer and an adulterer. You have to work it out. Because God tells the whole story. To me, that, that authenticates the Bible to me. Because if I was trying to fake the Bible, I would take out all those stories. I would whitewash those stories and only tell the good stories about people who loved God. But God tells all the story. I love the story of Esther because, because the, God doesn't whitewash the story. He te- we whitewash the story when we retell it, but God tells the story the way it really was. And he goes, but I was still with Esther. Thank God for grace. God was still with Esther. So let me be clear, Esther is still the hero in the book of Esther, but it didn't happen in such a clean way that we retell the story. And so you, know, you probably know the story, but I'll just recount the story for maybe there's new believers in here or watching by Bethel TV. So Esther becomes queen through you know, a series of um, interviews and, and spending the night with the king, and she becomes queen, which is a really great thing. And she has an uncle, or actually he's a cousin, who actually raised her named Mordecai. And Mordecai and Esther are Jews, and they're in exile in a foreign land, a Gentile land. And so Mordecai is really, I don't know how to describe Mordecai. He's, he's got an interesting personality. Basically, he's a very strong personality, and he, he's a very honest man, but he's also a little bit like my grandfather. He's a little stubborn. And the king has a right-hand man. His right-hand man is named Haman. And Haman, um, Haman you know, stands outside of the, the, the king's courts uh, every day. And as people walk by, they're supposed to you know, do homage, like you know, bow down to him. And Mordecai's not having none of that. He's like, I'm not bound to that, to that guy. And every day, um, Haman stands out in front of the, the palace. And every day, Mordecai just happens to be on the same street and refuses to bow. It seems a little bit like he's trying to irritate Haman or that Haman's trying to irritate him. But as the days go on, he begins to hate Mordecai. And he finds out that Mordecai is actually a Jew, not a Gentile, that he's a Jew. And so little by little, he finds out that he won't bow because Mordecai has a relationship with God and he's not going to worship anybody but God. And he kind of figures out that all the Jewish people have a God and therefore they're not going to worship Arxusius, the, the, the king. And this story kind of goes on. It's really a great story. If you've never read the book of Esther, it actually is a really, really great story. And so he gets madder and madder. And in the meantime, while he's getting angrier and angrier, the king, there's a, there's a plot to kill the king. Mordecai hears about it. And through a, a, a kind of a, a, series, a story, Mordecai saves the king's life. This is, kind of, this is kind of like the subplot that's happening while Mordecai and Haman are having this conflict 
Mordecai is actually is loyal to uh, the king, and he actually saves the king's life. So some things happen, and Mordecai, he's got a bunch of friends that actually hate Jews too. So they kind of, you know, misery loves company, they're all hanging out together, and, and Mordecai goes home every day, er, er, you know, and he's just getting more and more depressed because, because uh, I'm sorry, Haman is getting more and more depressed because Mordecai won't bow to him, and, and it's kind of creating this whole kind of wave of people who won't bow to Mordecai. So he's hanging around with his friends, and he's like scheming, like, ah, i got to kill this guy, what am I going to do to this guy? And, and, uh, and so one of his friends says, why don't you just set some gallows up and just get a decree from the king to hang Haman on the gallows? So like Haman's like, that's a great idea. So he sets up some gallows, you know, it's like hang, noose, you know, where you hang people. And, he, um, and in the meantime, the king has a dream. And, no, I'm sorry, that's not true. In the meantime, the king can't sleep one night. It's the opposite of a dream. He has insomnia. <laughs> sorry, I was getting mixed up with the, you know, Babylonian king of Daniel. In the meantime, the king can't sleep one night, and he goes out on his, you know, he's looking out over his, his, his um, kingdom there, and he starts thinking about this guy Mordecai that saved his life, and he's thinking, now, I don't think I've done anything for this guy. Like, did I... Did I give him a reward or anything? Did we do anything for this guy? So he calls Haman in and he goes, Haman, you know, what should the king do for somebody who he really respects and he really wants to honor? Like, I want to make sure this guy gets a really good gift. What should I do for somebody who really, really, really has honored the king? And he goes, oh, I know what you should do. Haman's thinking it's him. I think you should put your royal robe on him. You should put him on the royal donkey. You should march him down the street, and you should have people pay homage to him. And the king goes, that is a great idea. Take my robe and put it over Mordecai. <laughs> and march him through the streets. And Haman is like, oh, he's just like, he just wants to kill Mordecai. So, you know, here he is. He's, he's the guy that so wants to kill Mordecai. He's got some... You know, Gallo's set up to kill Mordecai, and now he's, guy, he's the guy that's got the king's donkey, and he's put the royal robe on Mordecai, and he's marching him through the street, and people are giving homage to Mordecai. And it's just like, he's just like beside himself. He just, he just can't even stand himself. So, finally, he's just scheming and thinking, and he's got these evil friends that are scheming with him. And one day he decides, he gets this really good idea. In verse chapter 3 of Esther, verse 8, starts there. Then Haman said to King Arzusius, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from ours, from all the other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it's not, it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. If, it pleases, if it's pleasing to the king, let me decree that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put the king's to put in the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring and said from his hand and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also do to them as you please. Now, he has no idea, the king has no idea that Mordecai is a Jew. And Haman doesn't know Mordecai, that Esther's a Jew. So he's going to kill all the Jews and the king just decreed that they kill all the Jews in all of the king's kingdom. 
It says this in chapter 4. When Mordecai learned what had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Verse 2. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was, well, no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Each day, each and every, I'm sorry, in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So you can imagine that this is horrible. The king's made a decree. It's like a month away. All the Jews are, are you know, the, you know, the, you know, there's no 7R News, there's no CNN. I mean, the people slowly are hearing about this decree. And as it's going from province to province, the people are weeping and wailing. Mordecai tears his clothes. I don't know why, but all the prophets always rip their clothes off whenever God's on them. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not an Old Testament prophet because it's either turn the light off and lose weight. So... Mordecai is, he's wrecked. You can imagine, he's wrecked. He's, he's, you know, he's totally you know, stressed out, mourning, wailing. You know, the, the words beginning to get out. You can imagine the people all over the, the, the king's nation are beginning to weep and wail. And it says many put you know, sackcloth, and, and sackcloth and ashes, and they're just laying in the streets weeping. Verse 4 is interesting. Chapter 4, verse 4. When Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen withered in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. This is a very interesting. Her, you know, you can imagine Esther, unlike Moses, was not raised in a palace. She's, if you will, a slave girl in exile who happens to, I understand it wasn't luck, but from the outside, gets lucky and wins the queenship. She has no training, except for beauty training. She has no training on how to rule with the king. She didn't grow up in a palace. She didn't grow up in a royal family. And so you can imagine, she's, in my example, she, doesn't grow, she didn't grow up close to the palace. So she sees Mordecai, if you will, acting you know, he's not politically correct. He's ripped his clothes. I mean, this is her, everybody knows this is her uncle Mordecai, a, a man of, of nobility. And, you know, he comes to, close to the palace and his clothes are ripped and he's got ashes on his head and he's weeping, he's mourning. And she's like, she's trying to get him to act nobly. <laughs> she's trying to get him, I'm going somewhere. She's trying to get him to be politically correct. She's like, calm down. It's all right. It's going to be cool. And you can tell by his response that she's sipping suds in the palace. And she thinks that the palace and royalty are going to separate her from the problems of her people. And she's trying to get Mordecai like, look, come on, you know, don't over, you know, don't exaggerate. Don't, don't get too crazy. You don't want to be numbered with the crazy people. You don't dress up. You don't look. What's, what are you doing? And then this decree, the most famous decree in the book of Esther, of course. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine 
that you're in the king's palace and you can escape any more than all these Jews. In other words, he's saying, just because you're in the palace, remember, they're going to figure out you're a Jew and you're dying too. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise arise from the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. This is her uncle, uncle, uncle Mordecai who loves her, who believes in her, who actually got her in the palace. He was, if you will, he was her agent. He taught her how to win. He is the one who arranged the people around her to prepare her. This guy loves this girl, but he has a harsh word for her. If you remain silent, God will find another person. He will find another person to replace you. But let me tell you something. You and your father's house will be lost. That's a harsh word from a loving man who loves this girl. And then he makes this profound statement. But who knows whether you've obtained royalty for a time like this. Who knows that God didn't cause you to win because he knew this was going to happen and he had the answer before they ever had a problem. Who knows that not only did God get you in the palace, but he got you there at the right time for this situation. Who knows that you're not supposed to be the... Who knows that you're not the hero in the story? How do you know that you're not supposed to be the hero in the story? And Esther begins to wake up. And she says... Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and pray for, and fast for me. And do not eat or drink for three days or nights. And I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. For thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. If I perish, I perish. She tells him earlier, I can't go see the king because I can't go unless I'm summoned. And if I go before I'm summoned, then I'll die. And Mordecai responds, You're going to die anyway. <laughs> the question is, are you going to die? The question is, are you ever going to live? The question isn't, are you going to live? The question is, are you going to make a difference? Charles Aiken said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. My story is not about Esther or Moses. My story's about you and about me. This is a great history lesson, and we can all like, oh, awesome Esther, you did it. But I like to propose to you that Haman's death decree is killing our babies. And most of us do nothing. I like to propose to you that the most important issue of our time is not the national debt, which I think is crazy, $20 trillion. It's not ISIS. We kill more people in one day than ISIS kills in a year. But like Esther... We're pretty comfortable. Doesn't affect me. People just disappear. Millions of them just disappear. 
On November 16, 2006, I was coming home from Atlanta, and I sat next to a Jewish businessman. How do I know he's a Jewish businessman? Because I was on the plane, exhausted, and I closed my eyes, and I was going to have a nice, quiet Bill Johnson time. Don't talk to anyone, and they won't talk to you. But the man tapped me on the shoulder with my eyes closed, and we took off and said, Hi, I'm a Jewish businessman. I'm going to tell you one more thing he said to me three minutes later. I said, hi, I'm a Christian pastor. I thought I'd tell him I'm a Christian pastor, and I thought the conversation would be over. He said, I'm a liberal atheist. That's his response. I'm a liberal atheist. Okay. I thought, that's good. We won't be talking. You know, you get in those moods where you don't want to talk. So I closed my eyes again, and he tapped me on the shoulder. So what are you doing here in Atlanta? I'm doing a conference, a Christian conference for Christians. I thought that ought to end the conversation very quickly. So we started to interact a little bit. And I told you, he's a, business, he's a Jewish businessman who makes shoes for a living. He makes specialty shoes for like people that have di- uh, diabetes and they have... Um, you know, they have to have special shoes because they can't feel their feet, those kind of... I'm sorry, I know there's a name for it. He told me all... Yeah, neurop, neuropathy, something like that. So he makes special shoes. For, in other words, they take a mold of the person's foot and it actually has to fit perfectly. And he's been doing it for 30 years. And I said, oh, that's, that's really cool. So he made a little connect because, you know, obviously I was in business for 20 years and I was a consultant, business consultant for five. And, so he's, and, and then he said, yeah, but I've never made any money. And I don't know why, but it just hit me funny. A Jewish businessman who doesn't make money. <laughs> it's, just, it's like an Asian who doesn't like to take pictures, you know? It's just like... Sorry. I'm being funny. A Mexican that doesn't like tacos, you know? I know, stop, right? Okay, stop. I don't know why, but it truly did hit me funny. And I'm like, so I said to him, I'm sorry. (laughs) He's like looking at me. He's very serious. He's like, what's the problem? I said, I've just never heard of a Jewish businessman who didn't make money. It just seems incongruent. Like, didn't God bless your race? I told him, didn't God, you know, he's atheist, right? Didn't God bless your race? I mean, it's like, Abraham was blessed. That's your father. I really did say that to him. And he goes, well, that's a really good point. I said, so, you know, it's just, I've, I've worked for several Jewish businessmen. I've never met one that didn't make money. It's just like, it just comes natural to them. I mean, it's a compliment. I didn't mean it in any other way besides that. And so, anyway, so we start talking, and so he's telling me about his business, and he has like 15 employees, and they've been there forever, da-da-da. And, and I, just, at, just in, a, in a second of time, the Lord just gave me this whole business plan for him. I mean, it happened in 35 seconds. I, I saw it as a picture. So I said, hey, get some notepaper. I'm going to give you a business plan. He's like, you're going to give me a business plan? I said, yeah, I got it from God, the God you don't believe in. <laughs> so now you know, we're starting to kind of do, you know, he, has, he starts to tease me back, and we're, we're kind of connecting. So I give him this business plan. It's 10 pages long. 
He has 15 employees, and we, give, we write out a job description for every single one of them. We change the way they're, they're being uh, compensated. And, and I said, you're compensating, you're compensating your people for what you don't want. You actually are giving them more money when they do what you don't want to do. That's why you're losing money. Oh, that's a good point. So why don't you do this? We switch it all around. We turn it, change his people, da, da, da. And the Lord gave me the, the personalities of each of them. And I said, does this guy do this? Shouldn't he be doing that? He's like, yeah, that's a perfect description of him. Mike. yep. Three hours pass. We're making a really good connection, right? And, you know, building a respect for one another. Great guy. I really like him. So I'm like, okay, we're done. So I close my eyes, and it's three hours. So, you know, I'm like, I really am tired. So I said, I'm going to get some sleep. And he said, okay. So I close my eyes and put my seat back. And he taps me on the shoulder, like, not three minutes later. And he said, what do you think about abortion? Out of the blue. I'm like, let's just find another thing we don't agree about, you know? And I said this to him. I wrote this down the day that I talked to him. I said, do you know how Hitler convinced the Germans to destroy more than six million of your Jewish ancestors? He looked at me with the question mark. I said, he convinced the Germans that the Jews weren't human. That's how they exterminated you, like rats. They convinced people you weren't human. He shakes his head and, and I said, do you know how the Americans enslaved and tortured and killed Africans, African-Americans? He looked at me, shakes his head. I said, we dehumanized them so that we can, our constitution didn't apply to them and when we treated them like animals. I said, do you understand how we got permission to kill the Native Americans? We convinced ourselves that they were savages and not human. We dehumanized them, then we destroyed them. And I said, do you understand how we got permission to kill the young in the womb? In the womb? He's looking at me, tears running down both his eyes. I said, we took the word fetus, which is the Latin word for offspring, and redefined it to dehumanize the unborn. Now our constitution no longer protects the unborn because they are not considered human. And I looked at him and I said, the Jewish people and the African Americans should be the greatest defenders of the unborn because you understand what it is to be dehumanized and exterminated. He looked at me with tears running down his eyes. He said, I've never, ever, ever thought of it like that before. And we stared at each other for a good minute. You all know what that's like when you stare at each other and something's happening in the spirit. You stare at each other. There's a connection made in your soul with one another. There's some kind of an agreement happening, and you can feel the change happening in a man's soul. And you're staring into his eyes, and he's staring into yours, and you just know that this isn't a normal look at each other. This is a connection that one man is making with another man's spirit. And we stared at each other for a good, solid 60 seconds. Tears running down both of his eyes, he just kept saying, I've never heard anyone describe it like that. And then he put his head down. And he said, would you forgive me? I said, would I forgive you for what? He said, I've hated Christians my whole life. You're the first Christian I've ever actually talked to. And I've been wrong. Liberal 
Jewish atheist businessman. His description of him. See, there's something that happens when you actually encounter the truth. Not just statistics, but you encounter the truth. I believe to this day that the Holy Spirit whispered in his ear, ask him what he thinks about abortion. Because it was out of the blue. We weren't talking about abortion the entire time we were talking about business. And out of the blue, he felt inspired to ask me about abortion. I don't know if you know much about abortion because as long as you cross the street and go to the other side, you don't really want to know about it. It just creates too much conviction. See, it's really difficult. The, the Samaritan, what he did that other people didn't do is he put himself in the way of people who were hurting. The reason why all the Pharisees crossed the street is because they knew that if they actually encountered another man's pain, they would be moved with compassion. So they just separated themselves from the pain. As long as you stay separate from the pain, you don't have to actually think about it. You can stay in your palace, sipping the suds. Well, you know, a basic genocide happens all around you, and you don't have to think twice about it. I've been moved for years. I wrote a book about it. I was sitting in the front row tonight and I was thinking, what would it take to actually make a difference? Like, what, do you, do you know that we are on the verge of changing this law? Like, we're on the verge of, we're the closest to, since Roe versus Wade, we are the closest that we've ever been in America, I'm talking about America, of overturning Roe versus Wade. Do you know why? Ten years ago, the first time in our American history, at least the first time in American history, that a survey has showed this, that 10 years ago, I think almost 12 years ago now, Gallup poll survey showed that there was actually more people against abortion, 51 point something percent, almost 52 percent, against abortion. And like 48 percent for. That's the first time since Roe versus Wade that the populace was actually against abortion. And we're in a democracy. Planned Parenthood was on the ropes a year ago. See, uh, sorry. I like to stay away from controversial subjects. (laughs) See, Napoleon said, the object of war is victory, but the object of victory is occupation. And I'd add to that, the object of occupation is transformation. I have been a Christian since I was 18. That's about 12, 14 years ago. (laughs) And I have watched in my 45 years of being a believer or whatever it is, I'm 61, whatever it is, I've watched Christians get victory but never get occupation. Like we have a big party when the battle's won and the war's never over. We get somebody against the ropes and we don't stay together. We don't push through. We don't persevere. We don't get them down. We don't stay together. Do you know 
2.5 to 3% of our population who claim to be homosexuals are dictating the political policy of the United States and the globe, all but about eight countries in the world. Do you know 3% of the people are dictating political policy? You know why? They care. That's the only reason. We have Jesus, we live in peace, we live in comfort, we sing all our comfort and songs, and you know, it's like, we're so happy. It's like, well, the fact that other people aren't, it's like, well, yeah, that's a problem. I'm not saying we should be unhappy. I just think that we should do something about injustice. That's what do you think? I think it should matter. See, I think that if you're really visiting God's palace, like when you pray, if you're actually taken in the heavenly palace, you can't leave the palace and not do something about injustice. It's the nature of royalty. It's the nature of it. Like you stop being afraid of people. Like, well, what are people going to say if I say something? I don't know. Get on my Facebook page. You'll see what they do. You know... You're all going to die. You're all terminal. Isn't one person in here who isn't terminal? The question is, are you really going to live? And the greatest struggle in life isn't that you don't live long. It's that you don't live at all. As long as you live in fear, you're not really alive. I give you a few statistics. Every year, 46 million abortions occur worldwide. That's 5,365 an hour. That's 89 children a minute. That's 1.5 children a second. At the current rate, more than one-third, 35% of American women will have an abortion by the time they reach the age of 45. By the way... Um, America isn't leading this this particular problem. Russia legalized abortion in 1955. An average Russian woman has had 10 abortions. Out of 1.4 million abortions performed in America, 690,200 are women. So when you say you're, you're protecting the rights of women, which women? So I want to be really clear. Like, I don't think government has the right. I, think, I don't think government has the right to tell grown-ups who are consenting what to do in their own bedroom. I didn't say it isn't sin. I said I don't think it's the government's business. Now, you may disagree with me, but I think two consenting adults, two consenting adults, if they want to be male with male, female with female, they want to be threes and fours, I don't... If they're all consenting, it's not, in my mind, it's not the government's business. Now, if they're, if they're believers, it might, be, it might be the believer's community's business. It might be their spouse's business. It might be a lot of people's business, but I don't think it's the government's business to put rules on people God doesn't put on. But... Abortion isn't like that. Abortion is about protecting two people, the mother and the child. And one of them can't, has no voice. Our Constitution protects people who have no voice. 
It protects the underdog. It protects the people who can't protect themselves. That's the, that is the, you understand, that is the purpose of government, is to what? Create peace and protect its people. I actually shared about this about a month ago on some other issues. So I'm saying, you know, abortion is not, uh, it's not a religious issue. It's a moral issue. It's not wrong because the Bible says it's wrong. It's wrong because it's wrong. It's not, you know, murder's not wrong because it's in the Bible. The Bible says thou shalt not murder, but how many know if it wasn't in the Bible, it'd still be wrong. Stealing isn't wrong because the Bible says thou shalt not steal. I'm saying, I'm simply saying, whether you believe in God or not, we're not talking about a religious issue. We're not talking about the Sabbath day. We're talking about the government's responsibility to protect life. When you stand up and say, I'm for women's rights, well, half the people who are being aborted are women. In what way are you for women's rights? Every woman in this room was once a baby. That's deep. (laughs) If a fetus isn't a baby, how can you sell the organs to humans? I'm not going to get graphic because we have children here, but I'll just say this, and you read between the lines. Abortions take place by injecting a saline solution into the womb. I won't tell you the rest of that story. But if you think I'm wrong, you're like, I think a woman should have the right to an abortion. Okay, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to get online, get on YouTube, and Google abortion, and you can watch a live abortion. When you get done with that, if you still disagree with me, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You're like, well, I'm a woman. I had an abortion. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. Listen, you are so forgiven, it's not even funny. If you've done anything like that, whether you knew it was wrong, how many know sin means you, didn't, you knew it was wrong and did it on purpose? Start over. You can't sin by accident. If somebody told you that that was tissue and you believed it, you were deceived. But how many understand you did in sin because you didn't even know that was a child. <laughs> you were lied to. So you did something wrong, yes, but sin means I did it on purpose. So if you said, I knew it was a child and I aborted it anyway, I'm, saying, I'm trying to say, no matter what you did, you are forgiven. Not only are you forgiven, not only are you forgiven, but you are blessed. But Jesus said this, he who for his, who's forgiven much loves much. Like, what can I do to make, the different, make up difference? If you've had an abortion, listen, there's nothing you could do to get forgiven. You're already forgiven. You don't need to do a thing. You don't need to work harder. You don't need to do penance. You don't need to dedicate your life to anything. But listen, wouldn't you want to help every other woman who's doing the same thing? I mean, wouldn't you want to help every other woman who's about to make the same mistake you've made? I mean, I've made lots of mistakes in my life. I write books about it. (laughs) I write books about it for lots of reasons, but one of the main things is, like, a wise man, Proverbs says, a wise man learns from another's mistakes. (laughs) 
Very interesting. Um, Bound for life statistics. Every year in America, this this statistic's 10 years old, so this may have changed a little. 616,074 African Americans Americans are born every year in our country. Obviously, that statistic's going to change a little. 458,500 babies, African American babies, die every year. 284,877 blacks die the same year because of natural causes like heart disease and so forth. What's the point? The point is, is that the population of African Americans in our country is actually being reduced by 127, 303,000 a year. In other words, we stood up for the rights of the African American and they are three times, I'll just read you the statistic, between 1973 and 2004, only 30% of the black population, I'm sorry, Nearly, nearly 30% of the black population was erased through abortion. Out of 4,400 babies dying daily that are reported, uh, reported as abortions, 1,300 of them are African Americans. 32% of all women having abortions are African American. And only 13% of Americans are African American. So do the math. African Americans are three times more likely to have an abortion. What am I trying to say? I'm simply saying we... We gave a people group, we, we, I didn't do anything. I thank God for our forefathers who paid the price to free African-American people and bring them back into a place where our constitution protects them. But the devil still has another idea and he's still killing them. To the rate of three times the rate of a white woman. And there's only 17% of them in our country. Are you with me? It's a genocide. If you're Hispanic, you're two times more likely to abort a child than a white person, than a Caucasian. I'm not trying to say you're you're a bad person. I'm simply saying, can you see? There is a... There is... That race thing is still happening in the spirit. I'm going to figure out a way... To take it out on you. And by the way, it's kind of ironic that Planned Parenthood was started by Margaret Sanger. You know who Margaret Sanger is? Well, she was a eugenist, and she also believed, and this is a quote from one of her books, that, that Africans, black people, are weeds that should be exterminated. Isn't it funny that she starts an organization that exterminates more black people than anyone have in history? Okay, so why do pe- abortions happen? Let me tell you. 98%, this is uh, from the um, uh, right to life um, statistic, 98% of all abortions take place for personal choice. In other words, unwanted, inconvenient. 1.7% take place because of the health of the mother or the child. 0.3% take place because of rape or incest. More, di- more children died at the hands of abortion doctors since Roe versus Wade than have died in all the wars put together in, the, in American history. 
this is happening, right? I mean, this isn't happening like over there. This isn't happening like across the ocean. This is in your backyard. It's happening every day. Oh, I don't know if you know this, but if your child wants to get an abortion and she's 12 years old and 11 years old in the public school, 15 years old, she doesn't have to get consent from you as a parent. You can't give your kid, the school can't give your kid an aspirin without telling you, but it's illegal for them to tell you if she wants to have an abortion, not tell her parents. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And by the way, if they want to have a gender change now in California, they can do that without your consent, too. Yeah, all this is happening while you're awake or sleeping. See, most of you don't even believe it's true. You have to go... Google it and figure out that this happened while you were asleep. You weren't paying attention. It just happened. I know you weren't paying attention because if you were, it wouldn't have happened. It's interesting because the ultimate injustice happens when we definition, the definition of what is conceived is determined by by the method of its termination. Let me say it again. The ultimate injustice happens when the definition of what is conceived is determined by the method of its termination. What are you talking about? Well, let me give you an example. In 2005, the case of Scott and Lacey Peterson. Do you remember that? He killed his wife, but she was several months pregnant. I don't know if I wrote down how pregnant she was, but she was several months pregnant, and the fetus died. Well, because it was a murder he was charged with a double murder. So if she would have had an abortion, that would have been a fetus. But because it was a murder, it's now a child. If you get in a car accident, and it's your fault, and let's say you're a drunk driving, and you hit a woman, and she loses her baby, you are charged with first-degree murder. But if she aborts a child, it's a fetus. What other thing do you know of that's defined by its termination rather than its conception. Yeah, and the insanity is that the the highest courts in the land agree. And we have politicians that are like bragging about women's rights and and now you know you can have third trimester terminations, abortions, third trimester. One politician said, well, that's tearing the baby out of the womb. And the other politician said, don't exaggerate. Exaggerate? No, no. That's an under-exaggeration. What's really wrong? You know, if you... Uh, we lived in the woods, so these examples may not be relevant to you. But we lived in the woods for 20 years. And you take a passive animal like a squirrel or a deer... And you put the squirrel in a log with her babies, and you stick your hand in that log, a normally passive animal like a squirrel we all know is going to run away, right? But not if she has babies. You know why? Because she has the maternal instinct. Maternal instinct. Like, nobody told the squirrel to have maternal instinct. It just does. Like, you want to make a mom mad? Mess with her kids. I'd propose you want to make a dad mad, mess with his kids. Like the maternal instinct isn't just in women, it's in men. 
You know, people say bad stuff about me every day. I mean, that I know of at least once a day because they, they're so courageous. Not to my face. That's about once a year. And that doesn't bother me at all. But if you talk about my kids, I don't want to ban you. I want to rip your head off. In Jesus' name. I think you know where I'm going. I'm saying, what do you have to do to convince the person who's the most protective, the mother and the father, who's most protective over what's happening in the womb? How do you take the, how do you shift the person who's most protective, the two people who are the most protective, how do you get them to destroy the thing they would normally protect? I'm saying, it's not just about laws, is it? Because our, in our country, China, we're not in China. In our country, our country doesn't require you to have an abortion. It just allows you to. So what I'm getting at is like the law supporting our core values. For example, a woman couldn't, couldn't vote in this country until 1920. Is anyone thinking that the law is going to go back to keeping women from voting? restricting women. Does anyone in here have any anxiety at all? Like, we're going back to women not voting. Does anyone have that? No. You know why? Because we redefined what we believe about women. You didn't get what I said. I said laws follow core values. When when women won their rights, they didn't just win the law. They didn't just change the law. They changed the mindset of Americans. American women don't think, well, gosh, they, you know, they see somebody like, oh, I hope we don't go back to, you know, are we going to have to fight for, no, you're never going to have to fight for your rights again, at least not in this, you know, at least not unless there's Sharia law. Because we live in a country that actually has changed its value system. Are you following me? So I'm saying that, I'm saying abortion isn't just about bad laws. It's about bad thinking. And I'd suggest if you change the thinking, you change the laws because laws tend to follow a few years behind thinking. Obviously, uh, for sake of time, I have six minutes, which I'm going to go over. Sorry. You're going to be tormented just a little longer. Psalm, you know, Psalms, uh, well, let me just say this. There's so many verses about the value of children. Psalms 127.3, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children one's youth. I'm sorry, I need to pause so I don't forget this. Abortion is not a woman issue. It's a man, it's it's a father and mother issue. It's a mother and father issue. When women are interviewed, almost always, the guy doesn't want the child. Almost always. Now, obviously, there's ten, we're talking about millions of people. You're like, I've interviewed five of them, and none of them had that situation. I'm saying, most often, the man's not in the picture, which is one of the reasons, one of the reasons why it happens. Now, I have actually known a couple that I was, uh, years ago, counseling, where the man was trying to keep his girlfriend from aborting the baby. I understand there are exceptions. I'm making a point that most of the time, it's an absentee father is perpetuating the situation. I'm simply trying to say, it takes two people to make a baby. I'm just saying, it isn't all about women. It's about society. So what happened? 
in the agricultural age, people had lots of children. Why did they have lots of children? <laughs> lots of children because they were free labor. What we, what we actually accused the Chinese of, we did for thousands of years. You put the children to work in the factories. So did we. We put the children to work in the fields forever. So we had a big family, so you had free labor. And by the way, you know why kids get out all summer long? <laughs> because we were an agricultural nation, and the school system was, was developed in the agricultural age. And farmers would never send their kids to school if they had to be in school during the harvest. So teachers said, well, we're going to end up, how are we going to have school if, if three-quarters of our kids are missing? So they gave us the summer off. So I'm simply saying that the more kids you had, the more prosperous you were. And then something happened. The industrial age hit. And children went from a blessing to a burden. Now, not right away until the Second World War hit. Because what happened in the Second World War? See, the men went off to war like they do all the time in all countries. And I understand now men and women go off to war, but follow me. Men went off to war, and then we ran out of ammunition in the Second World War. Remember that? So who's going to make ammunition for our men who are off to war? The women. It's only people who are left. I don't mean it in a sarcastic way. I mean, that's what happened. This is history. So the women went to work. But you know the problem? There's no daycare. What do you do with 12 children, 8 children, 6 children? Remember, we just moved from the agricultural age. And while we still have big families... And now our, our, our moms are working in the factories, and what do they do with six, seven, 12 kids? And suddenly our kids, just follow me for a minute, I'm getting there. Our kids go from a financial blessing, a financial blessing. The more kids you have, the more prosperous you are. Free labor. To now we have to figure out some way to pay people to take care of them. What am I saying? I'm saying that the erosion of the blessing of children began 150 years ago. There's lots more things. I'll tell you a couple more. Then we had Darwin's theory of evolution. Now, why is that important? Because Darwin's theory, Darwin lived in the mid-1800s. It's kind of funny because when Darwin developed his theory of evolution, no scientist embraced it in 1800s. But then something happened in the 60s. You know what happened in the 60s? We had the free love movement. If you can't be with the one you want, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. What does that mean? That means have sex with whoever you want. And what were happening? We began to violate. See, people were having sex outside of marriage long before that. But the thing is, society still said it was wrong. Now society said, oh, it's okay. You can, you can live together. You know, my mother got pregnant with me out of wedlock. You know what my father did? Yeah, he immediately took my mom and got her married. <laughs> Why? Because there was a stigma about having a kid that didn't have a name. <laughs> now there's more people cohabiting than are married. I don't know if that's true. I'm just... That, that's not statistical. I don't know if that's true. There's a lot of people having kids from cohabiting. But what's my point? What did Darwin say? Darwin gave people a reason to not feel bad about their behavior. Because he said, there is no God. You came from an ape. 
or amoeba, depending on what kind of evolution you like. What's the problem with that? Well, how many of you know we shoot animals? Some of you are like, not me, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> Whatever, I'm so far past my time. What I'm getting at is this. The Bible said, and most of American society believe, that we were made in the image and likeness of God. What did that do? It put us above the animals and said, we are God-like, not animal-like. But Darwin came along and said, no, we're not God-like, we're animal-like. What happened? It reduced humans down to intelligent apes, which we kill. I'm simply saying, can you see what's happened to why we don't value children? It didn't happen overnight. Slowly, it began to erode. And what's the, the worst thing about, in my mind, about evolution is not the theory of evolution, which I do not believe in any kind of evolution except for interspecies, like, you know, if you... Yeah, anyway. But my point is, the, the worst thing is, it steals your identity. And if it steals your identity, suddenly life's not valuable. Because the thing you eat, the thing you hunt, the thing whatever, you're like, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a vegan, it's like, whatever, you know? Most people aren't. So, there you go. You know, there is a thing called the day after pill. Now, you can make your own conclusions. I've talked to a couple of doctors I really respect. And some doctors believe that if you, if you take the pill day after, within, the, within 24 hours of the time that you've been impregnated, that it's not an abortion. It's actually a contraceptive. I've had several people write me on Facebook and say they didn't agree with that. But let me just say this. The point I'm trying to make is, one of the reasons why people say, well, we need abortions, da-da-da, because what if a woman gets raped? Okay, well, that's 0.3%. Now you can take a day-after pill. Now, I understand, if it is abortion, how many would agree that it's way more humane? <laughs> I mean, can we just be a little bit realistic? I'm not saying I'm for it. I'm simply saying, if the only reason why we're having abortions is because of rape and molestation, there is a cure for that. It's not... A, it's not it's not the best cure, but it's 10 million times better than an abortion. Can we agree on that? I mean, can we agree on something? So I'm saying, you're taking away people's argument. That's all I'm saying. You're taking away the argument that people have, like, well, how about rapes? Well, how about the day after pill? How about molestations? How about the day after pill? What if it's a, what if it's a week after? Well, it is an abortion then, but that's even way more humane than a first trimester, second trimester, third trimester abortion. I'm saying, I understand it's relative righteousness, but it's relatively 100 times better than that. Guys, if we found a single cell on the moon, we'd say there's life on the moon. (laughs) How do you trust science? You know, in the 1600s, a scientist named Galileo perfected the telescope. He did not invent it. He perfected it. And the Catholic Church at the time was the ruling um, entity, organization of the time. 
And Galileo said, listen, the sun does not revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. You probably know the story, but they put him in prison for that in the rest of his life. Because they wouldn't believe what was verifiable. Now people are like, this is a fetus, it's not a baby. We have 3D sonograms. Tell me that that's not a baby. It looks like a baby. Acts like a baby. Now, how come it's not a baby three hours before it comes out, but after it comes out, it's protected? Tell me that. See, what I'm getting at is this. This isn't a Christian issue. It's not even a religious issue. It's a moral and science issue. How do you trust scientists who will not verify that a fetus is a human when they tell you, yeah, we've been here, you know, they, 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 they give you the historic count of humanity through carbon dating, but they can't verify that a fetus is a child in the womb of a woman with a sonogram. You ever, you ever wonder why science doesn't rise up and say, hey, that's a child? You know why? Because when you're politically incorrect, guess who's funding 85% of all science? The government. Exactly. Guess why no scientist wants to stand up like Galileo Galileo did? Because you lose your funding for science. It's all about money. Karen Nitt did a survey. They said, depending on the clinic, 72 to 80% of all women if they saw a sonogram before they had an abortion, change their mind. Guess what? Doesn't it seem reasonable? Like, if you're going to make the most important decision of your life, I wouldn't even buy a car without knowing what it went through. If I was going to make the most important decision in my life, wouldn't I want all the facts? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you as a doctor, if you're going to do an operation on somebody, let's say a heart, someone had a heart problem, I mean, would you take them in there and just tell them, all the good things that can happen? Are you not required by law to say, hey, this is a risky operation, it has this percentage of chance of da-da-da? I, mean, I mean, wouldn't you get sued if you didn't tell the person what the risks are? Do you know that if you simply passed a law that a woman had to have a sonogram, you would end 80% of all abortions? Do you know they've tried to do that and the Supreme Court keeps knocking it down? You know Why? Because abortion is a huge moneymaker. There's huge amounts of money at the lobbyists that lobby for abortion. So you can't even get a woman to be required to have a sonogram. But you ought to require, you have to tell a patient about risks, and he has to sign the risk paper if you're going to operate on his finger. Ladies, this is you. Like, this is your part. Like, you should rise up and say, we need to be educated. Do not keep us in the dark. Tell us the truth. Then let us make the decision. I mean, you could solve the problem. I bet, I bet if you dropped abortion 80% the first year, I bet it just goes away. After the rumors get out, hey, I saw my baby today. I'm almost done. 
I'll just finish with this. I think there's a spiritual element. If you've ever counseled someone, I've counseled three girls who are anorexic. If you've had anorexia in here, you'll you'll know what I'm saying is true. One girl, 72 pounds, skin and bones, stands in front of a mirror, swears she's fat. That is not logical. I don't care how you cut it, that's not logical. There is a spirit, Ephesians chapter 6, there's a spirit, you know, it says our, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. That word principality comes from the Greek word first preached. It's translated everywhere else, first preach. What's the point? And it's the word origin, first preached. What's that mean? The principality that he's talking about there is a, is a, is a spirit that redefines the origin. It says, no you're just a glorified ape. No, that's not a, fe- that's not a baby, that's a fetus. In other words, this prince, his job is to redefine origins, beginnings. I'd like to propose you the re- reason why super brilliant people disagree with this simple statement, a fetus is a baby, is because there's another thing involved. It's not logical. You could sit next to a very intelligent person. You would, you would respect them on any other level with any other subject. And they will just tell you that fetus is not a baby. I'm like, what's that on the sonogram? That's a fetus. Well, how about if it's born? It's a baby. How did it turn into one? Oh, I don't want to talk about that. And you don't want to talk about it because it's not logical. I'll finish with just these thoughts. In Exodus chapter 1, when God was raising up a deliverer to deliver his people from the Egyptians, for some reason, Pharaoh decided to kill all the firstborn children. God's a little bit sneaky, and he puts the child who's going to be the deliverer in Pharaoh's palace to protect him. Pharaoh actually is protecting the person he's trying to kill. Because Pharaoh is demonized and knows that God's raising up a deliverer, and God puts a deliverer in his palace, and he protects him. Isn't it funny? He wants to what? Kill all the firstborn males. When Jesus is born, what does Harold want to do? Kill all the firstborn children. How many know every time there's a move of God, the devil is trying to kill the generation that's here to change the world? What should we do? I want to just give you eight quick things. First, we need to work to change public opinion in the conscience of a nation. What does that mean? That means t- talk to your friends about abortion. Talk to your children about it before it ever comes up. Number two, science needs to step up and redefine what, when life begins. If you're a scientist, by the way, I've been telling our students for the last 10 years, please, some of you, become scientists who have courage. Please. Number three, politicians. The laws need to change to protect the unborn. Number four, media. Pro-life people need to move into the media world. We need to make movies about this. Number five, doctors need to be held to the oath that they, that they took to protect life. Number six, we need to create a safe place for unwed mothers to be fathered and mothered. You can't tell a mother to keep her child and then not do something about it. And by the way, I, I don't know if I said this, but in case I didn't, there's no such thing as an unwanted baby in the first world. 
No such thing. Listen, I don't care what anybody tells you. There are mothers and fathers waiting in line. Just try to adopt a baby. You will be years trying to adopt a baby. I know several of them in this church. There's not enough babies for the amount of people who want babies. So I'm telling you, if you're pregnant, there is no such thing as an unwanted child in America. Yet we're in China, maybe Africa, but we're talking about us right now. Number seven, men were created to protect women and children. We must step up into our God-given role and protect the unborn. And number eight, women who have had abortions must stand against the lie that abortion has no negative side effects. I have a friend. She's had seven abortions. The first four she had before she was a Christian. The last three she had as a Christian. The last abortion she had, and I'll be very careful so it doesn't get graphic, The last abortion she had, she woke up in the middle of the abortion and she saw through a clear tube what was actually happening. On her seventh abortion, she completely freaked out and had an emotional, mental breakdown. Years of counseling later, Pascal is writing a book now called Pro-Choice? It's really, really important that if you've ever had an abortion, that you be the ones who stand against it. To whom's forgiven much, loves much. And so, you know, I, I'm like, what should I do? Something. Can you imagine if, you know, in this country, there's a, you know, claimed to be 180 million Christians in a country of 367 million people. I mean, I think if 100 million people just began to write books, write articles, do Facebook posts, talk about it, be compassionate, create solutions for girls who are pregnant, da-da-da, the whole thing. I'm like, you, you may have a passion for one thing. Someone else has a passion for another thing. Don't, don't get mad at because someone else has a passion to be the protester, and they're like, you're like, they're not taking care of the babies. Okay, well, you take care of the babies. Like, everybody do what God put on your heart to do. If everybody does what God puts on your heart to do, we'll move forward. And, and let me just say this. I know I'm, I'm 10 minutes over. Let me say this last thing. One of the problems that we have in passing laws is we never can agree because Christians want to get everything passed in one law. And I'm like, listen, let's pass a law that third trimester abortions are illegal. <laughs> so, no, because it has second and first. I'm like, let's just make a little ground. Let's just save some babies. Because that's exactly how the homosexual community did it. They just took a little ground, and a little ground, and a little ground. You know, let's pass laws like, let's, let's insist that through, through the Information Act that women get all the information before they have... I mean, these are, these are doable, and I believe that, you know, technologists left us better off. We are the most, com- you know, comforted people in the world. And we sit in the palace that Esther never had a chance to sit in. We travel across the world in luxury and complain about the plane being late. This is us. But how many know too much is given, much is required? I have it. I'm 61. I have it in my heart that I will not pass what happened on my shift to my children. This happened in my shift. 1970, Roe versus Wade. That what happened on my... I'm sorry, 1973. What happened on my shift would not get passed to my children. Like we would be the generation that fixed the problem we created. Would you stand?
You know, um, I've been in lots of these. This is, I wish I could say this is the first time I ever preached this. I've preached this for 25 years. Wrote a book about it and started something called Moral Revolution. Almost completely because of this issue. And I've seen a lot of people get happy. And I've seen most of the people that get happy and excited and committed a week later do nothing. And so I'm asking you to commit to the Holy Spirit that you will do something. Like if everyone in this room did one thing, there's about a thousand of us in here and probably another 40,000, 50,000 people watching. If everybody did one thing, we could shift a nation. We could start a hope movement. Like, we're not angry. Like, I'm saying, Bethel people, we're not protesting. We're not angry. We're not, you know, how many, you know, prophesying against your nation because of abortion? That just says, when we tell people, God's going to kill you because you're killing your babies. Like, that is schizophrenic God. He's mad because people are dying. He's going to kill more people. That's just stupid stuff. That is, that, that makes it worse. That says God has no value for human life. That's not the God we're with. So I'm saying, if everyone did something, it might be, I'm going to go talk to that teenage girl. I know she's pregnant, and I've been thinking, I bet she's going to have an abortion. And you're just going to go save one life. And it's like, I, I live my life to save one life. How many know? You changed something. You made a difference. And some of you, you're going to start a whole organization. Some of you are like, I was born to take care of the girls who are pregnant to make sure that they are, those babies are well-received. I'm going to start a, you know, a, an adoption clinic. I'm going, to, I'm going to protest the whatever. I'm not a protester. I won't, you won't include me in that. But I have a great value for it. Martin Luther King protested. Some, it, we have the right to do that. Like, this is a free country. But we should make it clear that the greatest Holocaust in the history of the world is happening on our shift. It needs to matter. It needs to matter. We don't need to get mad. That's not going to help it. It needs to matter. So close your eyes. Please. Oh, I'm sorry. Still in intense mode. Okay, take a deep breath. Can you please close your eyes? I'm sorry. It's hard to talk about this and not get intense. And I'm, I'm usually late, very laid back. Sometimes. Would you close your eyes and ask the Holy Spirit what you're supposed to do this year, in the next 12 months? Holy Spirit, what am I supposed to do in the next 12 months? Holy Spirit, what am I supposed to do in the next 12 months? And whatever he tells you, would you, would you do me a favor? Would you go home and write it down somewhere? If it's on your iPhone or you know, a pad, whatever you write on, would you write down this date, Holy Spirit told me to do this, and I promised that I would do this in the next 12 months, and then put that someplace where it reoccurs because we are busy people. We are busy people. And we will forget the commitment we made, not because we have bad hearts, but just because we're busy. So Holy Spirit, so ask, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do in the next 12 months? When you have something, would you raise your hand? When you have something the Holy Spirit told you to do, yeah, don't put your hand up for, you know, don't put your hand up because of peer pressure. When the Holy Spirit gives you something, would you raise your hand? I just want to get a sense if this is, uh, if, if the Holy Spirit's actually giving a mission out to people. Just, just leave your hand up. If, 
if the Holy Spirit gave you something, would you just put your hand up and leave it up? Might be something small, might be something big. Would you just put your hand up? Okay, just wait another minute. Probably mm, two-thirds of the people have their hand up right now. No peer pressure at all. I, in fact, I, I really value if you just being honest. If you haven't got anything yet, then you just need to ask Holy Spirit when you get home. But if the Holy Spirit gave you something, just raise your hand. Good. Now I'm going to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you love people. I thank you that you commissioned us to have a happy life and to help other people have a happy life. That we spread this disease called abundant life. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us strategic ideas, even covert ideas. We'd be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You said the sons of the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light. So we're asking you for real wisdom. We're asking you for ideas that are Holy Spirit birth that will actually change lives. And Lord, I pray that you would bathe it in love so that people wouldn't feel judged or all the religious stuff they say about believers, but that they would feel loved, that we would love them into a new place in God. And I pray for my Jewish businessman friend that that awakening that took place in his soul as we just interacted for 20 minutes, that that awakening would happen all over our nation. I pray the greatest awakening in the history of the world would take place in the next 12 months. The greatest awakening. It wouldn't be a religious awakening. It'd be an awakening of life. That people would wake up to life in Jesus' name. And everybody said, so be it. God bless you. Thank you. Wow, wow, wow. I was telling Gabe in the front, we were, we were going, what are we going to do for ministry time? And I was telling Gabe something the Lord told me before we ever started the young adult ministry here, uh, before Tribe had ever kicked off. We had, we're just going to ask people to wait just a moment. I know people are exiting, but we're going to wait and we're going to do it some ministry time. But before we ever started it, he said, if you, if you succeed with a young adult ministry here, you'll lower the abortion rate. I was just, it, what, we weren't even planning anything. We weren't even building anything. What, young adult ministry wasn't even happening yet. And the Lord said, if this is what you do, you'll lower the abortion rate. And so one of the things that I was leaning over to Gabe, I was saying there's something in this as well that's just calling a generation to purity. It's just calling a generation that says, you know what? I actually, it's not like, okay, I'm not going to make out with my girlfriend, but a generation that says, actually, we will not have sex outside of marriage. That we will choose to consecrate ourselves. That we, and, then, and that not only will, do they make that choice, but com, a community that will stand beside them in support that says, I am with you for this. I'm with you for this. So we, we know we're going to welcome our ministry team to come, for, come forward because we know that there's, this can bring up all kinds of things that you may need ministry in. And if you're like, hey, I actually need that consecration moment. I need that moment where I need to actually surrender my life. And I need to give this moment of letting Jesus actually be Lord and transform what's going on inside of me. I want to invite you to actually come get ministry tonight. If you're in that place, you're like, you know what? I actually need to make that repentance moment. I need to make that about face. I need to rearrange my loyalties to Jesus. And I need to change that thing inside of me. And I want to start living a pure life. We want to invite you for ministry as well, to come get ministry as well. So let's pray before you end, before you guys head out. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you that we ask that your strength would be with us all week long. All week long, be with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to play some music. We're going to welcome you to come get ministry if you need prayer and ministry tonight.
Thank you for joining us. On our website, ibethel.org, you can find our pastor's itineraries who may be visiting a place near you. Chris Overstreet will be in Stockholm, Sweden, October 26th through November 2nd. And Joaquin Evans will be in Winnipeg, Canada, October 28th through the 30th. Now we want to hear from you. If you have any prayer requests, you can email them to pastor at Bethel.tv. Our team would love to pray for you. And be sure to send us your testimonies as well. We've recently heard a testimony from Joaquin Evans, who was at a conference in Bloomington, Illinois. One of the pastors there said that he had to shift his theology because during the conference, he started seeing angels. As he said that, the power of God hit him and he went out in the spirit for 45 minutes, landing loudly on the stage. We pray that your eyes would be open to all that God wants to show you. We pray for you to have sensitive spirits, aware of what he's doing around you and in you. Thank you for watching Bethel TV and joining us and our Bethel family around the world. We hope to see you again soon.